Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley, the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. And that was the voice of Marty Oakley, who passed on April the 1st, 2023. She was the warrior behind all of these programs. Good evening. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice. My apologies for those who were listening last week and to my guest, Debbie Mulcahy, when we were disconnected. If you have any questions or comments during this evening's program, press 1 on your phone. During the program last week on January the 31st, I explained how the aggregate cap, which for this year is $32,486.92, works and why it is the best in the best financial interest of hospice to have a shorter length of service, indicating why many patients' death are hastened. It's one giant pot of money that is shared with all patients. Those that require less service and die sooner are more profitable. That program from last week is archived, so I won't go into the details on that. Hospices are business for profit, even if they're labeled non-profit. Follow the money. And there are some good pro-life hospices that follow the initial intent to minimize pain for the actively dying, but there are few and far between. You have to do your own research, stay alert, and watch for the red flags. And that's one of the things that we talk about in this program is those red flags. I've been asked a couple of times about the levels of care in hospice, so I want to talk about those for a few minutes. Medicare covers hospice expenses, which is why so many people are tricked into signing up. Well, that and the promise of a shower and not having to go to their doctor. It's a free service that will not cost money, but it will cost you time with your loved one and their life. Medicare makes payments regardless of what service is provided, including days when no services are provided. Now, each patient, patient in the beginning has a care plan that lists what services they're going to be given. And hospice, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are hospices that are cropping up all over the place, and people who are not medical profession, professionals are opening those up. It's a lucrative business unless you get caught with Medicare fraud. As CEO Bradley Harris, Novus Hospice in Frisco, Texas, was caught, he and 12 others are in federal prison, but not for the murders, for fraud, and for falsifying that somebody met the criteria of being a hospice patient. So there are four levels of service, and each one has a different cost on it. And this di- this data is from agingcare.com, because I believe in doing your research. So by all means, follow up behind me if you'd like. Level one is routine home care. So day one through 60 is $200 a day. Day 61 and forward, the rate is $157.50 a day. And this is what most patients receive, the in-home hospice, which is the cheapest, and the family is taking care of the loved one with hospice staff coming in ever so often to check and, of course, making sure that they have the comfort kit with the drugs in it. 
So the second level is continuous home care, which I've personally not heard of anybody that's receiving that. That would cut deep into their profits. The level is for very short term. The cost is $1,432 a day. So you can see why it is rare that they offer this service. And actually I've heard some people requested it and they were told it doesn't exist. The third level is inpatient respite care, which is $461 a day. And that's when they talk you into your loved one going into the facility so that the caregiver can have a much-needed break and get some rest. And I agree that they do need rest. So this one I'm quite familiar with because my parents were tricked into this for my dad to get rest, and they took both of them to the facility where they each had a room. They immediately put my mom in a coma with toxic drugs, and they killed her in 10 days. And I've had several other guests that have attested to the same thing happening to them. Um, One right offhand is Deborah Williams, how her father-in-law spilt coffee on himself, and the facility he was at didn't have anybody to clean him up, so they called the hospice, and they said, we'll take him to the respite center, and we'll clean him up there. They took him to the respite center. Uh, They didn't clean him up, and he never made it out alive. So once they're in there, they come out on a gurney, has been my experience as well as many of my guests. And keep in mind, when your patient is in the inpatient facility because they're there for respite care, you're not there with them. You're at home getting some rest. So there is no watchful eye on what they are doing to your loved one. The fourth level of care is general inpatient care that costs $1,045. And that, they say, is when a person goes to a facility for pain control or acute or chronic symptom management that can't be managed in other settings. As a comparison, typically the medical bill for my mom was about 4000 a month. The month they killed her, it was 8000 So day 1 through 9 was in their home, and day 10 through 20, the day they killed her, was in the respite facility. And the hospice advertisements say, this is their quote, many families wait to seek hospice treatments until their loved one is very near death. On average, half of patients in hospice die within the first month and between 30 to 40% die in the first week. While it's common to delay seeking hospice care until these last moments, Hiring hospice sooner can be beneficial in helping ensure your loved one is comfortable for as long as possible. So what are my thoughts on this? Why would anybody want to put their loved ones in the hands of people that don't value the sanctity of life so they can start drugging them and end their life sooner? And hospice was created for the actively dying, but here they're trying to enroll more people. Why is that? Money. They're supposed to minimize pain. That's not what they're doing. And they need to ensure they have a revolving door of patients enrolling and dying, enrolling and dying. The shorter length of service gives them more money. Make no mistake, hospice is a business. They will not live longer if you put them in hospice. 
And if you call drugging a person into a coma, rendering them unable to speak, eat, or drink comfortable, you have an odd sense of humor. Later this evening, um, we are fortunate to have a second guest, Irma Rappaport, who will explain an upcoming federal bill to help protect our vulnerable people in facilities during an emergency as we had with COVID, and she'll explain why that is. But tonight's guest, um, as last week when we cut her short, is Debbie Mulcahy, a licensed practical nurse since 1977. She was also a board member of the former Hospice Patients Alliance with Ron Panzer, Vicki Travis, and myself. And she brings a wealth of knowledge to the subject of hospice abuse. As I mentioned last week, she was able to save her parents from a hastened death in spite of hospice trying to force her to accept her parents were dying. They weren't, and they didn't. So, as last week, Debbie has 11 talking parents that like to talk to her when she is talking on the phone. (laughs) And I've heard them quite often. They're quite amusing. She can tell you what one of them told her today. So, um, Debbie, let's try this again, and um, hopefully you won't be um, cut short. So I'm turning it over to you. Thank you. Yep, I'm Debbie Mulcahy, and yes, I do have all these parrots, and one told me today that um, he yelled on top of his cage, I want to fly, and I couldn't help but go hysterical. But anyway, they've been great comfort to me. In the meantime, though, I worked at a nursing home, which happened to be a Catholic nursing home, which is supposed to be pro-life, and, you know, you don't encourage death or euthanasia. And um, I, I was a charge nurse on my floor, and one of the guys on my floor, patient, he, he became ill with a bladder infection, and they, of course, sent him to the hospital. And when he came back, he had a feeding tube. So he had a feeding tube for about a week, and then it was decided that, quote, his life had no value, and therefore we're going to not use the feeding tube. So I was informed by the doctor and, and the supervisor that um, I was not allowed to feed him through the feeding tube anymore, and he would only have morphine by mouth, nothing else. And I said, wait a minute, I can't do this. I said, I'm pro-life from, you know, birth to, to natural death, and I said, I, I can't do this. So, of course, I got called down to the administrator, and she says, how can you call this euthanasia? I never want to hear you use that word again. And I said, well, you tell me when you stop feeding one intentionally and you want them to die, what, what would you call it? So anyway, she's giving me a dirty look. Well, in the meantime, I went to a couple of the parish priests in town, and then, of course, I went to the bishop, who did not help me. And finally, one of the church lawyers in town um, came forward and basically saved this man's life. Um, maybe like six months later, this woman comes in, and she's only like 73, had a grand big stroke, you know, out in the street while she was walking her dog. And um, she'd been at the hospital. They transferred to my floor, and they tell me, She's brain dead, and therefore you may not give her anything by mouth except the morphine and, you know, the little cocktails there. And so uh, I I said, well, and and so I was kind of a little nervous, and and she says, don't do what you did the last time. And so I was at least just doing the admission, and so I'm sitting here asking her husband the question to the admission because, of course, you know, she's brain dead, right? But I'm looking at her, and she's looking right at me, and I'm thinking, no, you're brain dead. You can't listen. You can look at anybody. So anyway, I, I got the admission done, and I went home, and I brought back one of my little therapy dogs and, of course, one of my birds. 
She put it on her bed, and she literally picked up her left hand and started petting the animal. And with that, her husband stood up and he said, she's not brain dead. And I said, okay, then let's call hospice. Let's call the doctor and get this all off the case. It took me almost a week to get her feeding tube put back in. Up to about six months later, she was walking with a pond pain, and she was feeding herself with her left hand. Her speech was still a little disheveled and stuff, but... Other than that, she was feeding herself, and she was also going to the daily mass that they had at the nursing home. Well, I didn't realize that that was going to be my learning curve there for um, my parents. And so my dad um, developed some, um, it it was more like a vascular dementia, and he was at my house one day, and he left to go home, and he came back and he said, I don't know how to get home. And so at that point, we started checking and, and things. And he, then he even fell with the um, lawnmower into the river at his yard. And then my mother fell down the steps trying to help him to get there. And I, so I brought them down to Grand Rapids with me. I took them. I said, you got to sell the house because I can't keep running up here. So I brought them down here, and they lived in a condo like two doors down from me. Well, then Dad started getting kind of like he would have those afternoon um, where he was kind of, lose it and just kind of be really annoyed and so he accidentally well he hit me and so we did take him to a doctor and they did some testing and they said yeah he definitely has vascular dementia and stuff like that the doctor told me right at that time that he was in end stage dementia now i've known dementia to last a lot longer than just a couple of weeks anyhow um it was just pathetic because he looked at the doctor and he said to him, he said, isn't there anything you can do for me? And my heart was breaking. And then he tells my mom and I that we need to put him in hospice. And like fools, we, we took him home and we had hospice come to the house. Well, my dad was not dying. I mean, he was all dying. I mean, he was not dying from the dementia. And so anyhow, they kept coming and coming, and they brought their little comfort pack and told me, oh, you can use this whenever you need it, you know, if you've been paying this or that. But the only thing, now here's the thing that you need to look at when you sign up for hospice. Make sure you look on the paper and see what disease they used as an excuse to put him on hospice because they just put dementia. That was it. That was the only thing that I signed him for. Anyhow, um, a couple of months later, he winds up with pneumonia. So they told me it was the end-stage pneumonia. I said, no, 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 we all had pneumonia. Mom had it, I had it, you know. So I said, no, I'm going to take him to a doctor. And they had a big fit. And then I had I asked them for IV medicine, and they wouldn't give me any other medication. So I called our family doctor, and we had to pay for it ourselves. We put that on, I think it was stuff 10 or something, IV, and he came out of it in two days and even went to visit my brother. So, I mean, that shows you he was definitely in stage pneumonia. Well, a couple months later, then he, he developed severe pain. He curled up in, I mean, just crying in the corner. So I called hospice and I said, okay, I'm taking Dad to the emergency room. He's in a lot of pain. She said, there's no reason to take him there. You've got your morphine in the refrigerator. You can give him up to 10 milligrams. I said, wait a minute. I said, you're only treating him for dementia. Dementia does not cause abdominal pain. And so anyhow, I took a copy of the paper with me and I took him down to the hospital. In the meantime, the, the, the hospice nurse beat me down there to the ER and basically told the doctors there they could not treat my dad or even examine him. 
So when they came in and told me that, I said, you know what, look at this piece of paper. I said, do you ever know of a case of dementia that causes this much pain where the patient is curled up on the floor? No, no, but, you know, we don't want to do something against hospice. And so I said, no. I said, if you don't take care of my dad, I said, I will call every newspaper and every radio station, TV station here in town and tell them that you're refusing to treat a veteran. I said, my dad is in the war, and this is how you're going to treat my dad. So, can I anyway, back you up? Kind of, yeah, can, yeah, can I back you up for a second? Okay. Um, yeah. I didn't catch. What did you say that initially the doctor told him that he had, not the dementia, but did he have a heart issue? The first issue? time was the pneumonia. Okay. First no, time was well, pneumonia. He, he, yeah, and then the second time now when I brought him in and they didn't want to treat him, I said, well, I know. I want to know what he has. And this little nurse is going on and on about how, well, she's got meds for pain home and da-da-da. So I, I made it very clear to her. I said, you don't have anything listed on this diagnosis thing that you're treating him for. So if you're not treating him for anything but dementia, um, I'm going to treat him for pain. I am going to take him to the hospital. <laughs> so anyhow, Okay, so when, um, you took him, it, when you took him to the hospital, yep. wouldn't that have revoked hospice at that time? I mean, because they don't want you well, to take people to the hospital. And but then, didn't they but, revoke but see, here's hospice? The small print. No, no. See, the problem is you are – the small print is that if they don't list that specific disease that they're taking care of him, like if they were taking care of him for abdominal pain or something, then they would raise hell with me for taking him in. But because they didn't list that as a diagnosis that they were caring for him, that they were only caring for him for dementia, they could not force me to not get him care. So what it turned out to be was he had a kidney stone, which had nothing to do with dementia. Right. So right. The, so the hospital treated him, and they forced IV fluids, and he passed the stone and came back home with us again. And at that point, I fired hospice. I just came right out and said, you're fired. And then they tried to harass me because they wanted my IV equipment that I had gotten that my mom had literally paid for because Medicare didn't want to pay for it at that point. So um, anyway, he didn't have hospice. I did not put him back on hospice. And you're going to laugh, but he lived six more years. Mm-hmm. And so so he was definitely not in essays dementia either. So I was not going to put him back on, on there either. Anyhow, right. as time went on, he, you know, he, he had some more episodes and, you know, he wasn't eating as well and he had lost a lot of weight. And at that point, you really recognize that, you know, this is going downhill and it's, it's not, you know, exactly what, what they would do. But anyway, they, they, I, put, I put my dad on hospice only the last week of his life. And I only put him on it so that I would have the medication to give him if I needed it, you know, for breathing purposes or whatever. But, see, that's another thing. Unless you're in the medical field, you trust these people are giving you medications that are safe and they're not safe. Morphine is not a safe drug for breathing. Um, Any nurse... Any nurse, any doctor knows that because if you're in a hospital and have surgery and they give you morphine and your respirations go below 10 a minute, they stop it because what happens is it stops your breathing. So when hospice says, oh, it helps you breathe, I always ask them how. I said, how does it help them breathe? And then the products from the morphine, the metabolites, they 
stick on the diaphragm, and the diaphragm is the muscle that helps you breathe. So if you've got all these things on the diaphragm preventing you from breathing, how does that help you breathe? It helps put exactly. you down. And, exactly. and Haldol, that is, and they wanted to give him Haldol. He was already on medication. And I said, no, I don't want him on Haldol. It's contraindicated in the elderly. It's going to make him hallucinate. It's going to, but, see, that's their purpose because, see, once they start hallucinating and drooling and, and they can't coordinate themselves, that looks like they're having death come even faster. So then they convince Correct. the family that, see, you're having symptoms right now of you know, passing soon and so give him the morphine now and give him this and that. And it's like the only thing I gave him was at the end, and it was like right at the end, he was he was complaining of some pain in his legs. I did give him half a dose of morphine, and I did give him the pill. I can't remember the name of it, but it was to dry up secretions only because he was gurgling a bit. And it dried them up right away. And he went in a coma probably for two days the week that he died, and then he came out of it. He told me, oh, wait, let me go back a bit. A week before he died, he said to me, Deborah, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to church. And he says, well, I die at 4.30. And I'm like, what? And I said, I said did you see your mom or something? And anyway, um, that following Saturday, we were all hanging around, and it was like all of a sudden he comes out of his coma and sits up and he goes, Deborah, come here. And I jumped up and I ran over and I held him, and he kissed me goodbye. And it was 4.27. Wow. He had the most peaceful death. He had the most peaceful mm-hmm. death. I didn't give him anything else at that point for pain or anything. He was breathing fine. He literally put his head back down on the pillow and took one breath and just passed. So I'm, I'm my and question that was is, six, I, years I, yeah, six years later. Six years later from the time they would have taken him away from you and your mom. Right. Oh, yeah, they would have had, they would have had right. to overdose him well, back when he had the kidney stone. Well, right, and they told you then when you called in and said he was doubled over like that in in pain, Mm -hmm. and she just said, well, just give him morphine. But why would they have given you morphine for him when he had dementia? Why why would morphine be? And that was my question. That was that's what I always said. I said, you're not treating him. And see, when we got stuck in the hospital many times, um, I had a palliative care doctor come after me, and he said, your father's ready to die, and da-da-da-da. And this was six months before he died. And um, he says, your father needs to be on hospice. He doesn't even have a week left to live. And then he said, quote, 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 he said, your father's life has no value. And I said, who yeah. the heck do you think you are? I said, are you the doctor, the judge, and the jury? And with that, as God is my witness, I'm not lying. He's saying this all in my dad's room, thinking my dad's unconscious. Do you know the little voice came from the bed and said, Deborah, why are they trying to kill me? Now, is that someone mm-hmm. that's actively dying? I mean, so no. I had little signs all along. He was not, and, I, and it was the first time. I'm going to tell you something. It was the first time I could see the devil in this doctor's eyes. You can just see they—they they are so for death. It's unreal. Well, no, it's I protected cool. him. And then, they, oh wait. Oh yeah, and then you know what else they did? Because I fought so much in the hospital to get him out of the hospital to get him back on the psych unit so they can redo his meds for him. Um, they threatened me and called. Um, Oh, what is it? Protective services? Adult, Adult protective services. services. Uh-huh. 
Yep, and so I had them after me and everything else, and they never even met me. Wait to hear this one. They never met me in their lives. They accused me of doing things on the phone that I never did. And then on top of that, they finally closed the case. My dad's home now. He His meds are adjusted. He's doing great. I take him to different stores that he used to love. And, I mean, yeah, he repeated things, and I took him out for coffee and things like that. But I'm going to tell you something. It was really unreal. I said to this woman from Protective Services, I said, you know, you never bothered to even meet me, come out here, but you've made excuses to accuse me of things that I've never done. And I said, before you close the case, I said, would you please come and just meet me and my mom and so he said so she says well I can do that so I was standing outside the door and she comes and and she goes oh you must be the daughter I said yeah I am and I said come on in here and my dad was sitting in his recliner mom was on the couch and with that she says to my dad she goes well who are you and he goes I'm John Mulcahy and I'm from Queens New York and I thought for you and and then she said to him she said and who's this beautiful woman next to you and he goes that's Cookie, my wife. And with that, the woman, the woman from Texas Services, turned around and looked at me and she goes, oh, my God, you really did save his life. Right. Well, at least she admitted yeah, that. No. Yeah. Yeah, she did. She did. Yeah. But they and paint, then you know, I in a lot in... of cases, they paint the children who are asking questions and who only want to mm-hmm. protect their parents, they paint them mm-hmm. as being... Uh, you know, argumentative, combative, uncooperative, you know, they don't uncooperative, do, yep, uncooperative. Yep. yes, and they write that in the medical mm-hmm. records. That, exactly. And that's exactly what they wrote. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it was, so. it was absolutely, okay, then, so now my mom, my poor mom has, I mean, she's got so many things wrong with the poor lady. She had no circulation in her leg. She was congestive heart failure. She had atrial fib. I mean, she, she broke my heart because she really had a lot of stuff wrong. But she was not ready to die because we talked about it. I mean, my mom knew I was a nurse. She knew that, you know, and we'd go to church together. She was very prayerful and stuff. So, I mean, you know, we, we knew when things were coming up. And um, at this one point, she had lost quite a few toes because she had gotten the immersed on everything in the, in the foot and stuff. But she was still walking around, and I was still taking her places. And she, um, I took her one time to this wound clinic, and she was supposed to have the um, – toe that was removed, the area debrided, which means like scraped up and cleaned up so that it was all fresh skin. And I took the dressing off and the doctor comes over and she says, well, I'm not going to do anything with that. And I said, what do you mean? She says, she needs that leg amputated. Now, how is she going to get around? Let's see, well, she can barely get around with her heart and lungs the way it is and so then they're going to take her leg off. Are you kidding me? So she says, no, I'm not touching it. So I said, okay, just give me my clean bandage and I'll put it back on her. So then I take her to the doctor. Now, <laughs> this is this unreal. I'm sitting there and he's saying to her, now, B, what we can do for you is we can remove that leg and then put you in a place where you can be rehabilitated. And, and once you're strong enough, I'll have you fitted for for a um, prosthesis. And he's going on and on and this and that. I can hardly get around with the walker. <laughs> and so... After he was done, I stood up and I, I walked around and I said to him, I said, okay, now, Doc, I said, fairy tales hour is over. So I said, now I'm going to tell you what's really going to happen, Ma. You're not going to come home. You're going to be in a nursing home. You're not going to be able to even get out of bed without help. You won't even be able to get to the bathroom without help. I'm, and, I, you know, and I'm telling I said, I said, so that's the real story. And he just right. looked at me like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, don't play with somebody because then you 
you know, she's going to, and so then they said, well, then she should be on hospice. I said, for what? Because you think she should die? I mean, because by now I'm like outspoken and, and I'm like, I'll, I'll, after my dad, I was like, you're never the same after something like that. You are never. You're same. never. You're and never the same. No, no, you're never the same after that. And so I went and I said, I said, nope. I said, uh, you know, this is absolutely crazy. So then my poor mom, okay, I go over to her house and she's on the floor in the bathroom and I can't get in and she's unconscious. So slowly I'm putting my hand in there, pushing her head a little bit away. So I get in there and I'm sure she's had a heart attack, but she actually was a no code. So I wasn't going to call the ambulance and, you know, anyhow. Um, so I got her up and, you know, she came to and everything else. So I took her to the hospital. So I go to the hospital with her, and they told me, oh, no, she just, this is just a slip and fall. And I said, no, 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 it wasn't a slip and fall. I said, her lips are blue. I said, no, no, no. She, Well, anyway, they got the EKG up, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's, it's, it's totally irregular. So when I came out of the room, I said to the doctor, I said, are you watching her EKG at all? And so he came right in the room and turned the machine off on me. He turned the machine off? Him, yeah, so that I couldn't see it. If I couldn't see the irregular um, EKG. So, so then I said, you know, I said, can you just do the heart enzymes for her and, and just so that I know the enzymes are normal? And what the, nor- the enzymes measure is if they're elevated, it indicates damage to the heart, which means then she probably had a heart attack. No, that's not necessary. That's not necessary. Okay, so I take her home. The next day, she's still not feeling good. And so I call the doctor. Well, I can't get in for two days. So two days post whatever this was, um, I finally get her into the doctor. And it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And so she says, oh, well, B, why are you so weak? And I'm like, I'm telling you, it's a heart. <laughs> so anyway, he, um, I said, can you please, please, just do the heart enzymes for me? I, and he goes, I said, I just don't think it's necessary. I said, do it for me, okay? Well... Who did, and they called me back at 2 o'clock at home and told me to bring her back because she had had a heart attack and the enzymes were elevated. And so they don't care. They just don't even care. And how old was she at this point? At this point, she was 84. Okay. Which, I mean, people live to be in their 90s. I mean, why why would you just ignore that? Well, no, her mother mother lived to 95, so if that tells you anything. (laughs) <laughs> right. So go back now yeah, because no, you, you kind of left us. Hold on, Debbie. You kind of left us hanging. Did they remove your mother's leg? No, I wouldn't let them, and she wouldn't let no. them either. And so then they were right. They were trying to force me. And she's still to alive. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And I said to this doctor, and she says, "Oh, I know." The doctor that was not going to change the dressing, I said to her, I said, you know, I know for a fact. I said you worked intensive care before you took on the wound job, you know. And she said, "Yes, I did." And I said, did you ever give as much medication to an intensive care patient as a hospice person would give to a patient? Well, no, but it's legal. That's what she kept saying to me. It's legal. I said, I don't care if it's legal. I said, it's it's still not right. And I said, do you believe in, in life from birth to natural death? She says, well, no. She says, I do what's legal. I do what's legal. And I said, so you have no no faith in in God and God being the author of life. And she says, I do it. go. And finally, I just passed out. Yeah, none. That's <laughs> right. And, and yep. see, and that's the point that it is done with impunity, and they 
take our loved ones, they euthanize them right in front of us, and the government mm-hmm. knows about it, and so nothing is done to them. It's okay. Because when you go mm-hmm. in there, they're expecting you're going to die. They hasten the death. Uh, I call it murder. And it's, it's mm-hmm. completely acceptable because the government's saving money. But so many people will say, well, no, I mean, they're compassionate. And, you know, my loved one went in and, you know, they died peacefully in their sleep. Well, how do you know that? Were you there? Did you mm-hmm. see what happened? Were they sitting up and eating and talking one, you know, minute? And then they started giving mm-hmm. them morphine, Ativan, and Haldol. And, you know, mm-hmm. then they go into this you know, sleeping all the time, and then they say, well, it's a sign of dying. It is a sign of dying. Oh, yeah, and, and, then, and then the next them. thing is starve them. Yeah, and then the next thing says starve them. No fluids, no food, nothing. I said, and they told me that with my dad, too, when I first had them there, and I said, you know what, if he asks for water, I'm giving him water. And I did, and the same thing with my mom. But so I, I took a, um, a, a Christian hospice for my mom the last week. She was alive. And, you know, and so that's what I don't understand is how they can figure out that people are going to die in six weeks or six months, you know, that you could. Why would I hire six months before my mother died? She was acting fine six months before. <laughs> and so I was like, come on. But they, they uh, it, it's, it's just really sad. So the, my mom, she decided that she was really hungry this one morning. And she said, oh, I'm going to scramble it. So I did. And she said, oh, Debbie, yours are the best. And I said, oh, they're scrambled eggs on. Don't worry about it. She said, you can eat spaghetti tonight. So I made my homemade sauce, everything. I brought it in so I took a bite. And she said, no, I just can't. And then it was downhill the whole week. We were just downhill. So then I called hospice because I thought, okay. But I called a Christian one. So she's showing me how much morphine I can give and how much this, how much that. And my mom did have pain in her legs from lack of circulation and stuff. And so I said, well, you know, I think she told me to give her five of morphine. My mother was like 80 pounds. I said, no, I'll give her 2.5, and if in 20 minutes she's still in pain, I'll give her the other half. But I'm not just going to load her with morphine. Well, you can. That's safe. It's a child's dose. I said, I don't care if it's a child's dose. I said, you know, I, being that she's actively dying right now, we know the kidneys aren't even functioning. See, that's another thing you need to think about is when they come at you with all these meds, your body, if you're really actively dying, is not going to really push some of those meds through because it can't. It can't. It can't flush them out. It can't do anything with them. Right. So anyhow, the, the and they're not getting any fluids. No, no, no. So they're just they helping right. you destroy your liver and your kidneys. So the, but the priest comes and he's talking to mom and mom's going to confession. This nurse is standing right outside the bedroom door and she, so she goes. You know, Debbie, she needs some pain meds. She needs it. And with that, the priest said, no, she doesn't. She's talking to me just fine. Good for him. Mm-hmm. But this this is kind of what I went through. You know, and oh, and I'm going to tell you, they, they think that once they come, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is my parents or my family member. This is someone I've loved all my life or, you know. And then they come in, oh, you're so, you're so sweet. I just love you. And they're giving my dad hugs and kisses and there was this one aide that came, and she kept sitting next to my dad, and she kept putting her arm around him in front of my mom, and she kissed him on the cheek, and she goes, well, you're just so lovable. And my mother was just really insulted. So she calls me in the kitchen, and she says, get her out of here. I said, okay. And oh so goodness. I, I asked her to leave, and, and I had to call hospice. She says, who does that? And I said, that's what makes me so mad is because this should be the 
plan of the family, not the plan of hospice. Right. And see, when they came when they came in from my mom, I told them that. I said, now, we're going to get this straight right in the beginning so I don't fire you in two days. I said, the beginning of this whole thing is, this is my mother. I said, this is the Mulcahy care plan, not the hospice care plan. I said, you and I will discuss what hospice suggests, and I will go from there as to what I want. Absolutely. And I said, that's how we will do it. I said, that's a care plan. And see, that's the other thing. They don't explain to you, and if they don't know you're a nurse, they don't explain anything about the meds. And you're just naive enough to say, oh, yeah, that will help with pain, and this will help with this. And you think, oh, what a wonderful nurse. What a wonderful person to take care of, you know. Mm-mm. Because they like care. That. Yeah, they care what's in their pocket. They care. I mean that that's what everybody is taught and if you go look mm-hmm. for a hospice every you know it's compassionate this is compassionate care well I'm sorry but I'm like you it should be the plan for the family and we discuss it mm-hmm. and and all of the people that all of the um programs that I've done with all of the victims families not one mm-hmm. not one said they consented to the drugs, nor were they even told about them. They no, just, and they're well, not educated about them. What's that? Do you, I mean, do you realize, well, because they don't even educate them about the drug or the side effects no. of the drug because it doesn't matter. Because, you know, you, do you realize that, you know, I worked psych for a while too, and, and it was like you couldn't even put somebody on a psych med without going over every side effect. And then they had to sign saying that you went over this with them verbally and in writing. But when they do that to a dying patient, they don't have to tell anybody. They don't have to tell you anything about it. They don't have to have permission. And my mom completely said when they started giving her morphine, she said, you know, she came in and she was crying, and they said, what's Mm -hmm. wrong? And she said, I am afraid of morphine. I don't want to take morphine. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, the pain med, which was less, that you were taking causes constipation. Well, one of the side effects of morphine is constipation. But mom didn't exactly. know that because, you know, we're naive and you trust what they say. But she could never be consoled from that moment on, and that's in their no. medical records because she was afraid of morphine. She never gave any consent. That's why almost so everyone is educated. Yeah, it it really is. It's 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 just it's so scary, and and you know, and then if your parent really trusts you, I mean, you really have to find out everything these people are doing. You have to research I, I, and ask mm-hmm. the questions, and you have the right to look at the medical records while your loved one is in a hospital. Oh yeah, or oh, I did. I did in mm-hmm. in the hospice facility. <clears throat> But you knew you knew that most people are you know not in the medical field and they don't exactly. know exactly. And that's what breaks are. my heart. That's what breaks my heart because you've got people dying right and left that you know and and, and you know you see it more and more now than anything. No, it, it, well, it's, you do, it's so, and and you did so with the COVID. Things. Look with COVID you know, because they wouldn't let people in, you had that situation. Mm-hmm. And then the hospice people, they called them in. I remember them talking about this on the news. Mm-hmm. They were calling the hospice mm-hmm. people in to the nursing homes. 
Why? Because mm-hmm. they were familiar with the dying process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're familiar yeah, with the and that was the purpose. Yeah, that was the purpose. It, it's 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 absolutely. And they're not going to treat. Unreal. I mean, that's what people need to understand. They're not going to treat you for anything. And if your loved one had a UTI, that mimics dementia, and you know, yes, falls. It does. Um, UTI can cause people to become dizzy, mm-hmm. disoriented. They can fall. They can break bones mm-hmm. and whatnot. But they're not going to test them for a UTI because they're in hospice, and unless you force the mm-hmm. issue, they're not going to be tested well, nor they're going to be given any medication. Well, why do you think I went over their head with my with our family doctor to get the IVs in for dad? I mean, that was not end stage pneumonia. I'm telling you that. I mean, even looking at him, I knew it because I had it, and so did mom. We all got sick, and it was when just you it got just treated. Made yeah, we got and treated, you were treated, and so should your father have been. Well, here's what but they told me when I said to them. I said, but I need, no, but here's what they told me. We don't do needles. We don't, we don't because that we're in, inducing pain. We're, we're causing pain in the patient when we do needles. They even took, I'm, I'm going back to my great, my, not my great, but my grandmother, who was 95 at the time. They took her off her, warf, her, um, her uh, blood thinner. And they, and I called them right away, but see, my mom was running the show, and, and we were an hour and a half away, so I, I really didn't know what was going on. And so I called the nurse at the hospice there, and that was a Michigan hospice, and I said, why would you take her off of that when she's throwing blood clots from her legs into her lungs and her heart's there? Why would you cause something that's going to cause pain in the end if she has a heart attack? And um, she says, because we don't want to test the blood every week, you know, for a protein. We don't want to do protons every week because that hurts. And I said, you know what? You're forcing me to want to come up there Friday after work and do a proton kit. Take her blood and I'll take it right to the Big Rapids Hospital. No, that's not necessary. So within a week of being off the blood thinners, she had a massive heart attack, massive pain, was sitting up crying, hysterical, holding her chest. And my mother didn't even know what to do with her because she never saw her in that much pain. So what did they create for my poor grandmother? Yeah, exactly. Well, why would you take somebody off of the medication that they are being given that is keeping them alive to make them not live? So why why do they say over and over again that, you know, enroll in hospice sooner than later. Don't wait until right before they're going to die. Enroll sooner, and we can keep them no, comfortable. No, you're going to take them mm-hmm. off of their regular mm-hmm. medication, and you're going to make them incredibly uncomfortable, and you're going to shorten oh, their life should... for them and their family. My mom had a pain patch, not fentanyl. It was something else. I can't remember, but it was like it wasn't a decision. No, was it, it was um, butinephrine. Okay. But anyway, she had this patch, and they said to me when, and, and I said to them when I hired them just for that last week, I said, um, no meds will be changed. She will continue on her own medication. Well, I'm, she said, no, we're not going to pay for that patch when we're giving you the morphine. I said, I don't care. I said, you're not, because a box, just one box of four patches was over $100, and that's with the insurance paying part of it. And they said, well, we're not going to pay that. And I said, well, then I'm not going to hire you because I'm not going to take her off the meds I know are working for her. Right. 
So they let her have it, but they were mad at me. Oh, they were always mad at me, but, you know, I really didn't care. Well, correct. But but here, your two, your two stories about your parents, your dad would have died mm-hmm. six years earlier, and your mom would have died earlier. I don't think I have mm-hmm. the exact time frame. But both no, of your no, parents but would have would died have, yeah. sooner. Mm-hmm. Well, they'd have removed mm-hmm. oh, her leg, and then, oh, you know, she, she would have died. Probably would have lost the will to live, but not and do not enroll a person in hospice just because they have congestive heart failure or COPD or kidney failure. I mean that they have expanded why people get enrolled into hospice. That if you can't do adult mm-hmm, daily have. activities like you know brushing mm-hmm. your teeth, feeding yourself, if you're incontinent, you know if you need help getting dressed, and you have COPD, which a lot of people have, then you meet the criteria. Mm-hmm. That's not a death sentence, mm-hmm. but it is if mm-hmm. you go into mm-hmm. hospice. And, well, and I'm that's tell you what, what the people don't did. understand. No, what the hospital did with my dad, they listed him as actively dying. So in the process of listing him as actively dying, the insurance did not want to pay for any of his stays anywhere. You know, like to go to the hospital or anything for like the psych care and everything. Oh, we were out so much money over this; it was unreal. Because they said, "Nope." The doctor said that you know he uh, he was actively dying. I said, "How is he actively dying?" And you know, he lived until the week of um, Thanksgiving, and he made it to his 60th anniversary with my mother. I got pictures of the two of them out at the Olive Garden. I mean, you know, you can't predict death, but you can definitely predict the signs as it gets closer. Right. But it, you can predict it if you're causing it. Oh, definitely. I mean, oh, yeah, and that's really funny how they do that, too. Say, say your goodbyes now because they're, they're not going to be alert enough later. Why? Is the angel of death coming? You know what time? I mean, seriously, that's how bad that was. I mean, how? say your goodbyes now. How do you know they're going? Hospice, when right. I say that. Make it say, like, come on. Well, they give you that little book yeah. that tells you these are the signs of dying, and yeah. they are. You do see those signs. We did because they were drugged my mm-hmm. mother into a coma, and That's so, you know, they come say. in and That's they look right. at yeah. they look at the fingernails, um, you know, to see if they're kind of mm-hmm. turning blue. They look to see, you know, how much urine the um, patient is passing, mm-hmm. and they can tell by that because they are shutting the kidneys down because they're not getting any fluids and they've given them all these these drugs which are affecting their mm-hmm. kidneys. Uh, yes, they can tell, they can determine that and they know how long they've been on been without food and been without water. It's just cruel. One host, and listen, one host, and people can die. Go ahead. So I demanded them to do um, blood work on my dad before, the, before you know, they did anything to him because they told me, oh, he's actively dying. And I said, well, if he's actively dying, that would mean his, his blood work would show up with organ failure, you know, his liver, his, his kidneys. Do you know when we got the blood work back, it was completely normal? But they did do it? You, you got them? You talked them into no, it? No, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I wouldn't let them do it. No, no. I said, I said, how can you tell me he's actively dying when all his lab work's normal? They can't answer those questions. <laughs> well, they don't want you to ask them either. 
No, I was I was a troublemaker. Yeah, I was definitely a troublemaker. Oh, and then in the hospital, what they did too is I was trying to get my dad into um, the psych facility, and the psychiatrist there had been working with my dad with the dementia, and they were doing some treatments that were really working. But then when he was at the hospital, I couldn't get him there because I couldn't take him out. So I spoke with the psychiatrist, and he got him a bed after about four or five days of trying. They got him a bed there in the in the um, senior unit. And so I showed up at the hospital. I was so excited to get him out of there. And with that, the social worker goes, you can't take him out of here, number one. She says, I canceled the bed. And I said, what do you mean you canceled the bed? And here I'm waiting, begging this doctor for a bed. Well, he's dying. He's actively dying. And I told him there's no way you want to give up a bed in the psych unit for someone that's dying. And I took a deep breath and I said to her, her name was Claire. And I said, Claire, you know what? I said, I hope a couple things for you. I hope that when your parents are actively dying and they're sick or whatever they are, you're treated the same way that you're treating me. And I said, and number two, I said, I just want you to know that I will be getting my own lawyer for this. Well, I come back the next day and I've got a security guard coming in the room right away and who's the daughter? (laughs) I said, I am. And he goes, you need to come with me. And I said, I'm not coming with you by myself. I said, I will take a witness with you. So I took a friend with me. And he said, you threatened staff here. I said, no, I didn't threaten anybody. I said, she canceled a bed that my dad needed. And I just told her that I hope she had such good care when her parents were elderly. And he goes, but you threatened her. I said, oh, oh, you mean about the lawyer? I said, yeah, no, it's not a threat anymore. I already got one. And I walked out. And and he didn't say anything else, right? I mean, no, can't he, say no, anything at that no, point. No, what can you say? But see, I'm going to tell you something. I I checked all over for a pro life lawyer, and no matter, I'm going to tell you these big organizations and these big hospitals, man, it's like putting David up against Goliath. I mean, seriously, it, it's like you've got 20 lawyers, and my lawyer was sitting there by himself. You know what I mean? I I went to the court case, and by then they even got us lawyer, a, a representative from the state, to be my dad's lawyer. How do you like that? Without our consent, nothing. Well, how can mm-hmm. wait? He's representing your dad when you're there trying to keep your dad alive, and the hospital. Yep. Oh yeah, and you should have seen. Oh yeah, well, you should have seen it blew up because you know what? And see, that's the woman, why. The woman, <clears throat> You know, people say to us in the Murdered by Hospice group, where we have 3,000 people, mm-hmm. and people will say, well, if your loved one was murdered, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you hire an attorney? Why? Because attorneys will not take the case. Because, And I had uh-huh. about the, the 12th one tell me that he said, you, you want to know why nobody will take your case? And I said, yes. And he said, because there's no money in it for us. He said the hospice has big pocket, mass mutual insurance. They do not settle out of court, and we would have to, you know, call all these witnesses in, and, you know, we're going up against what they say, what you say, and he said we can't win a case like that. It's hospice. And he said, you know, I mean, all the the attorneys I talked to were sorry. No, I know, but the hospital even gets money for referring for hospice. It's pathetic. Right. It's absolutely pathetic. But it, that, my lawyer that. tried and tried. And so we, we were in court, and um, the psychiatrist that was for my dad was there too. And with that, the lady psychiatrist, the lady um, lawyer stood up and that was supposed to be assigned to my dad. She said, 
his life is, has, you know, he, his, his, he's got no value to his life right now. He couldn't even carry on a conversation with me and da da da, da. Well, that's from all the drugs they were giving him. And I said, yeah. this was in the hospital they were drugging him. They were drugging him in the hospital. And I was hysterical. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. And so anyway, she's saying, no, no, he's, he's half gone to the wind now because he couldn't answer my questions. He didn't even know his name, blah, blah, blah. And so then the, the judge said to um, the psychiatrist, he said, do you really think you can help this man? And he says, yes, I really do. And he goes, how much time do you think you need? He goes, give me six weeks. He goes, I'll give you three months. And within six weeks, he was fine. Then they gave him the bed at the, at the um, facility. They changed his meds. They got him all organized. And we took him back home. Wow. He, he was back yeah. home with us. Well, and who, who gets the right to say that a person's life is not of value because they mm-hmm. have dementia? Yeah. I mean, my dad had dementia, well, and too. And I, sometimes he didn't know who he was or who I was. But he had value uh-huh. to his life, and he was loved. That's Let me right. um, point right. out something for pro-life attorneys. Life Legal Defense Foundation. They're located in California, and they, mm-hmm. you can, if you contact them, they can provide you with a pro-life attorney in most states. So I want to point mm. point that out. Life Legal Defense Foundation, because it is hard to find um, attorneys. And you were talking about enrollment about them getting money for enrolling, which they do. We talked last week about the aggregate cap mm-hmm. of, you know, um, almost $33,000 that they get. Regardless of whether or not they're providing the services, they're still going to get paid that money. And if the person dies in a week, they're still going to get the remainder get of You're that right. money yeah, and it goes into a pot. So there are mm-hmm. referral fees, and when you go to the hospital, they have hospices that will go in there, you know, you got anybody that's, you know, getting close to dying, that's mm-hmm. why you have a hospital mm-hmm. person show up in your room. And Michelle mm-hmm. Young Dewars um, was a hospice respiratory therapist who wrote the book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. Mm-hmm. And it'll, they've mm-hmm. got quotas. And if they don't make their quota, okay. then, you know, they have a supervisor that comes down on them. And if they do, then they get bonuses for making their quotas. Oh, man, here I'm at the nursing home having people taken off. (laughs) This is a business. That's what people need to understand. This is not what Cicely Saunders created in 1967 to minimize pain Mm -hmm. for actively dying. This is a corporation. It's big business. Mm -hmm. It's big money. That's why people that aren't medical professionals are opening up hospices right and left because there's big money and everybody's going to die. At some point, we're all getting older, That's people right. get illnesses, and they make money off of that. They, it's cash cow. The people are the cash cow, and it is our responsibility to advocate for them and to protect them and protect ourselves. And part of that is having a medical power of attorney over your loved mm-hmm. one, somebody you trust to take care of you and not want you gone, and HALO, that's mm-hmm. H. A-L-O, halovoice.org, has a sample medical power of attorney. It's called a life-affirming lamp, life-affirming medical proxy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you do know, you halovoice.org. Yeah. yeah, do you notice that now more than ever, every doctor is asking you if you've got a, 
of, of advanced directives? DNR? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. signing a DNR? No, you know, I want, look, what people don't understand is if you sign a DNR and you're mm-hmm. in a restaurant and you swallow something wrong, then you you've got a DNR, mm-hmm. then they don't do Heimlich mm-hmm. maneuver. I mean, that's kind of a simple thing, but a DNR mm-hmm. means I don't want you to do anything to save me. It doesn't just mean that somebody's going to pound so on your chest because... if your heart stops. Yeah, so they had partial before. They had, years ago, they had a partial one where you could just decide which you really didn't want, but what you would, you know, what you would accept. Um, Whereas, you know, like if you wanted, if basic, you wanted the medication, basically, yeah, right. Well, but now you it's know, like all or nothing. Mine says, I, you know, I want you to do everything to keep me alive. You know, but I also have written in mine, I don't want fentanyl, I don't want morphine, I don't want you to put me on a, a respirator. I mean, it's kind of scary because, you know, you and I and so many others, when we've seen this, we're terrified of the medical profession. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't mm-hmm. trust anything they tell us. You know, hospice, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, when my when my dad was at his final end, they you know, we called the doctor and talked to the doctor, and the doctor said, is it time to call hospice in? And my dad, who mm-hmm. was a hospice chaplain for the hospice that my mom was at, mm-hmm. he knew my mom had been murdered at that point, and he started mm-hmm. screaming, no, no hospice, no hospice. And, you know, I said, and I told mm-hmm. the doctor, I said, you know how we feel about that. We're not calling hospice in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I told Dad, I calmed him down, and I said, Dad, you know, I'll protect you. Hospice is never going to come in mm-hmm. here. You're going to stay right here, and when God decides it's time for you to go, that's when it's going to happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I believe that we owe it to our parents, our loved ones, our spouses to protect them. Oh, definitely, definitely. Even our brothers so, and sisters, or you know, any anybody. If you're if you're going to be a, uh, yeah, advocate close for friend. anybody, yeah, anybody that you could you know advocate for. So, um, I yeah, want to. Yeah. I had told everybody that um, we had another guest on, and I want to bring her mm-hmm. in. Um, Debbie, stay with us. And her name okay. is Irma Irma Rappaport, and she is on here to talk about a a bill. And I'm going to bring her on with us. Okay, Irma, you are live and on the air with us. Okay, Marcia, thank you very much. And um, I appreciated hearing your story, Debbie. It was so Aww. sad. But you you are one of the ultimate essential caregivers, and that's what this bill is about. Uh, thank you for letting me speak about something so important. When my mother died of dehydration in a nursing home three years ago during the COVID pandemic because I couldn't come in to assist her, I felt very alone. But now I'm trying to honor her memory and the memory of thousands of others in similar situations by getting a federal bill passed so that no one will have to go through this again. Go through what? Be locked out from your loved one who lives in a long-term care facility during a public health emergency. Whether it was weeks, months, or years, we all know it was a misguided decision that caused our loved ones to decline, become depressed, and die. 
Even someone who is in a long-term care facility for short-term rehab after surgery found themselves isolated without their loved ones during the pandemic. So the Bipartisan Essential Caregivers Act was introduced in the House of Representatives in 2021, and I helped get over 50 co-sponsors for it across the state after getting all five of our representatives in my state of Connecticut to co-sponsor, and now there are 81 co-sponsors. The bill has to be reintroduced because we have a new Congress since last January, and I'm hearing it's mm-hmm. due to be reintroduced in the next month or so with a Senate companion bill to make it even stronger. Both bills will have identical language about allowing at least one resident-designated essential caregiver, and it doesn't have to be family. It could be anyone, like a minister, a neighbor, a friend, in-person access to the resident during a public health emergency while being required to follow the same safety protocols as staff. Getting this bill passed is all about making connections. I made a connection with Marsha by being a member of the Connecticut State Family Council where I met Dr. Mara Carpell, who hosts her own internet radio show, if I could give her a plug, called Dr. Mara Carpell and Your Golden Years. Dr. Carpell introduced me to Marsha, who offered to help by joining my email list of constituents for the bill. Her representative already co-sponsored the bill. She also reached out to others that she knows. So thank you, Marcia. And I oh, would you're like welcome. to ask yes, thank you. I would just like to ask everyone listening tonight to help by doing this. Go to house.gov, house.gov, G-O-V, and type your zip code in the box that says find your representative. Contact me to let me know who your representative is. You can find me on Facebook to message me, and my email address is Irma, I-R-M-A, at owlking, O-W-L-K-I-N-G, dot com. And it's so easy to help make your voice heard and join our army of constituents across the states who support the the Essential Caregivers Act. If anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. And if you email me, I'll email you more information about the bill and a digital copy of Protecting Them to Death, The Impact of Isolation in Long-Term Care, which has caregiver stories from the lockdowns for all 50 states. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a question. Can I ask you one? Of course. Yes. Thank Irma? you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you had said that the bill was to at least have at least one other person, whether it's a friend or a family or relative, that can come in and visit them. But now you're saying, but the part in there that kind of wakes me up here is when it says that the person that's going to be able to go visit this person in the nursing home has to meet the same criteria as staff. Now, what if we don't agree with what the government is forcing, like the COVID shots and things of that nature? So we we wouldn't fit the criteria then to go visit the family member. Well, the staff, now think of it this way, please. The staff is taking a risk 
that they choose to take. They're not indentured slaves, right? They they want them. They have a job to do. They and hopefully they care about their job. So they go in there and they have to follow the regulations. Uh, otherwise, they can't work there. Okay, no, and I the same. No, why shouldn't they? That. Why should we be different? What we're saying is staff. Staff during those past three years, they went home to their families. They had multiple jobs even. They went from patient to patient to patient in the building. They had multiple people to take care of, so they spread cross-contamination. But we would be staying with our loved one in their room. It's a public health emergency, remember. It's not just normal times. And... Right now, of course, guidelines say it's allowed at all times visitation. But this is just mm-hmm. to make sure that what those tragic things that happened a few years ago where somebody was totally alone, died alone while someone watched through a window, that that will not happen. The person that, that they're familiar with will be able to be with them. And I'll tell you something, if I, I just want to tell you, please, if, if I didn't agree with the safety protocols and I wanted to be with my loved one, I would either take uh-huh. them to another facility that, that somehow let me in or I would take them home after what I experienced with my mom. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, because I don't, I mean, if, I guess my, my, my thing is as a nurse, I shouldn't have to be, forced to take any kind of foreign bodies in my body to go stay with a family member or go visit my family member. And I'm not paid by that facility, so I'm not really required to do anything of their rules in my private life, and my family is my private life. But you know what? This is what I belong to an organization called Caregivers for Compromise that was founded by a woman named Mary Daniel. I was telling Marsha about this who took a job as a dishwasher in her husband's facility in assisted living so that she could get in in July 2020. The lockdown started Mm -hmm. in March 2020, and she couldn't even do a window visit with him because he would just cry. So she begged them to give her a job, and they gave her a job as a dishwasher, and she happily did it. This was in Florida until the state bill was passed in Florida, and then she could come in without having to have the job. But I I just want to please say that something like whether vaccines are, you should take them, not take them, that's not the issue. The issue is having a bill that's fair for all states. Even this past year, facilities locked down. I One in Pennsylvania, for instance, because of COVID, facilities have had sort of a precedent in having a power to decide visiting hours, who can come in and who can't come in, and we cannot have that. Now, if someone is lucky enough to be able to take care of their loved one at home, but that can't always happen. These are supposed to be their home. Just because there's a virus doesn't mean they lose all their rights. They should There's a Nursing Home Reform Act from 1987 that says people living in these facilities have rights, but there was a waiver to that by the government that allowed these restrictions to happen. And this bill 
is tied to that Social Security Act, Social Security, yes, that will prevent that from happening to, well, the bill is not out yet, but it's going to be at least one. It could be two with one at a time. And we know that most people don't get regular visitors. So this is for the small percentage of people that have regular visitors, and it frees up staff to help others. But as far as you can't be city hall, really. If If the government says staff in these facilities have to do something, and this bill says we also have to follow it, it's to make things as safe as possible because the excuse they gave was that we're not safe somehow and that's why we couldn't come in. But if we're saying we are safe, we're just as safe as staff is because we're doing what they're doing, and, and it really means, you know, the, wearing the gowns and gloves and masks and temperature taking, that kind of thing probably. And, and well, I don't I think anybody no would object I, to that. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think, no, I don't object to anything like that. Yeah, and I but don't think Debbie's saying that. But four shots or whatever. Yeah, and, and I think the bill is a very, very good bill. I mean, I think mm. you know, being able to come in, I think we should be able to. But I and I understand it's during a pandemic, but I also know that the vaccine did not prevent the spread of it. It doesn't prevent you from getting it. It doesn't prevent you from spreading it to somebody. So Debbie's just making the point that Mm -hmm. there's kind of a sticky wicket there because if you're saying Well, there's religious exemptions. You know, staff were able to stay in with religious exemptions, something uh, like that. Most of those were denied. Yeah, well, and even for the Uh, military. I mean, most of those were denied. But, I mean, it's a good bill. And it's just got, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a few things like that that maybe could be massaged. But I don't think that I just anybody would I... care. Anybody would care if, you know, if you have to wear a mask, you have to put on, you know, the space suit oh, no, or whatever what to go to in no. to see your loved no, that... one. Yeah. I, I don't have any objection yeah, to that. Me neither. I have nothing to that. No, no I would wear but whatever. I, but I, I think it's well, wonderful. It's... That, I think it's yeah, wonderful that you. y'all have come up with this and, you know, that you're yeah. – pushing it through and staying on top of it. And, yes. you know, you said um, that at the website, caregivers um, for, and that's a, a number four instead of the word F-O-R, um, caregivers Correct. for compromise, and each state has one of those. You can look at it on Facebook. Right. But, um, and you said there's right. stories out there. Are you interested, um, and we can put mm-hmm. this out there, to the same email um, mm-hmm. to Irma at O-W-L-K-I-N-G.com, that's alking.com, mm-hmm. um, if you have yes, a story yes. that you want to tell her and, you know, provide your state mm-hmm. that you were in and what happened mm-hmm. to you, did you, you know, did you get stuck outside, you couldn't see your mom or your dad or your husband or wife? I mean, if you have stories like right. that, the then it's sto- possible The stories that, are unlimited. There's thousands yes. of them, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And they're 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 different and yet they're similar, right? Because they're all tragic and they all should not have happened. Absolutely. Well, my sister-in-law's father, my sister-in-law's father passed away in a nursing home, and they could not go in to be with him. 
And that's wrong. I mean, that person's, you know. And mm-hmm. even you hear about doctors. They don't doctors couldn't get in. Nurses couldn't get in. I hear so much of well, that. that. That people like that that certainly knew how to follow safety protocols, and yet oh, they were right. not allowed in. Allowed in the religious weren't allowed in either, even to bring communion. Right, 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 right. And there was no oversight in the facilities. Nobody was in there, and they couldn't see what was actually going on in there. Well, and that person's completely uh, alone, and I th- some of them were actually locked in their room because if a ward, you know, wing of the, the area got COVID, then because everybody mm-hmm. was so terrified, if you were, you know, in the beginning of this, everybody was terrified to get COVID. That just meant you were going to die. And they locked them down and would restrain them in their beds so that they could not come out of their room and possibly infect somebody else. And that's why hospice was called in, and hospice euthanized a lot of those people. And oh. it, I, it's just it's insane that this happened. So I think this bill, mm-hmm. you know, is trying to bring back humanity into right. a very horrible situation. Right. And, and even yeah. if we want to put it behind us, even if we want to say, oh, this couldn't happen again, which it, it could, but we want to honor those people that passed away or declined. We want to just honor them with this bill to show, hey, you can't do this to anyone anymore. Absolutely. And and we need to stop. I mean, we see that it caused a problem. We have a solution, mm-hmm. and we need to push that forward. And people need to, you know, go to the website, house.gov, type in your mm-hmm. zip code, find out who your mm-hmm. your um, representative is, yes, and then very simple. email Irma, and that's all you have to do. You email Irma, this is my name, and this is my representative, and I want my representative to to um, sponsor this and sign off on it. That's all you have to do. Simple. I mean, Irma's doing Thank, the work. Yes. She and And, and you know, just calling calling your representative or or sending an email to their website will not be sufficient. So I can tell you the best way to make your voice heard and be happy to talk to anybody about it. And the, um, I believe on this, this program I also have in there um, the numbers for the senators in Congress to call Congress. I mean, people are always saying, what do I do? You know, how can I help? It, it, you know, these are suggestions Call your your representative. Let your representative know, you know, you're pro-life. You don't want people to be killed. I mean, this, you know, this is your turn to speak up and say what you want. And we all have a voice. Well, let's let's yes. let our voices be heard. Mm-hmm. Well, what you know, I do actually is I... I don't know if I should, I didn't want to go into all the details, but I could, I mean, tell about how I got these co-sponsors. Yeah, you got uh, like about 10 minutes, that's fine. Okay, so I set up, I've been setting up half-hour Zoom meetings with the health assistant of a representative and someone that lives in their district. And then I discuss the bill with the health assistant who almost always has never heard of the bill. 
I asked them if they personally knew someone that lived in a, in a nursing home or a long-term care facility assisted living to get empathy from them. And the constituent tells their caregiver story from their district. And then the health assistant speaks to the representative. And so that is a good way to get a direct line of somebody who can really get something done as opposed to if you have the ability to go up to the representative yourself somewhere and speak to them. Now, who is the health person that you're calling when you say that? It's, that's, that's the position in somebody's office. It's a health legislative assistant, and I do okay. all the legwork. I, I email to request the meeting. I attend the meeting with the constituent. I have all the materials about the bill. I follow up. So all they have to do is spend a half an hour. But if they don't, and also if they don't want to, they can just email after the meeting. I can have somebody else attend the meeting with me from the state as long as I have someone in the district who will email after the meeting. So it's really very simple. You're doing all the work. Right, mm -hmm. and they're just either coming on for a half an hour with me telling their story or else they're just spending one minute sending a one-sentence email after the meeting saying, I'm the constituent, I wasn't at the meeting, and I'm asking for the representative to co-sponsor this bill. Right. That's it. No, I, th I think that sounds real easy. I think we should put you in charge of a lot of bills. Because <laughs> most people don't know yeah. what to do, who to call, what to say, and, you know, you're just making it very easy for people to do that. So I'm hoping we get more from, you know, I sent you two people that have already signed up and say they'll do that, um, and I'm hoping I get more from our group that will, you know, step up to the plate and you know, take a few minutes to do this, especially those who lost a loved one during COVID and weren't able to get in there to see them or minimally right. could see them. I mean, it's, okay. it happens and then to them people personally. Yeah, yep. And there's people that also still have someone living in a facility. They might be afraid of retaliation for speaking up, but I want them to know they're just asking for this bill to be Past. They don't have to name what facility their loved one is in. They're just asking for the bill. To a, and the health assistant is usually in their 20s. They're very easy to talk to. Okay. No, I think that sounds really good. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you both for well, letting you. me speak yeah, about it. Well, no, thank you for coming on and taking the time and, you know, giving the information and, doing all the legwork on it. I, I think that's wonderful. You're welcome. We look forward so. to it passing finally. That's all. Oh, me too. <laughs> me yeah. too. All right. So, and I'll continue, you know, you and I will continue to talk and, you know, yes. see what else I can do to help um, help you push this through. Oh, thank so. you so much, Marcia. Okay, thank you. And you're welcome all to right. stay on with us if you'd like, but... Yeah, thank or not. you. That was great. Yeah. All right. So. Have a good. I'm. I'm gonna hang up right now. It's kind of late okay. for me. <laughs> Have okay, a good gotcha. evening, both of you. All right. You All too. Right. All right. Bye. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Good night. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Good night. I feel like John Boy.
you know, good night, John Boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good night, Mary you Ellen. Know, good night. So, <laughs> yeah, good night, Mary Ellen. Uh, so, good night, Paul. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, we've got uh, another 10 minutes here to um, talk. So, you've got anything else you want to add? Not, not, I, I just I wish there were more advocates. I, I wish we could put more people to 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 learn about this to be able to advocate for the patient. Like even if it's just to the family, I wish we, you know I right, wish there were some groups that that protect them. Exactly. You know, and, and then if they choose it, if they choose it, then they choose it with full knowledge of what's going on, rather than the fake knowledge that hospice gives. I mean, seriously. I mean, I yeah, have no problem lie. with some. Right, right. I mean, if somebody is dying of bone cancer or pancreatitis, I mean, those real painful things, of course they've got to be medicated. You know, but I don't think well, they need to be overdosed. No. And, that, I mean, that's what originally it was intended for, if you were actively right. dying. You know, and and people mm-hmm. know, when, I mean, you know, you like you say, you know, the bone cancer. I mean, you know, I knew when my dad was at the very end, and, and you knew, that's what it's for. Well, I, I knew when it's my not mom, for yeah. people yeah. that can be treated with medication. No, no. I mean, when my mom was starting to cry and told me her legs were hurting, and that was, you know, probably a day or two before she passed, I mean, I, I wasn't not going to give her meds. Of course I was going to give her something for pain. And, I mean, her legs were all blue. I mean, I, I looked at it. I mean, you can tell, you know, what's going on. Right. And, right. But, but and, you and you don't want them not, to be If pain. you're not medical, it's, no. But the, but people will yeah. say, well, you know, like in the medical records, um, when we were trying to get my mom off of the drugs so that she wasn't in a coma, mm-hmm. and they said that my sister and I said, it said daughters say they don't care if her mother's in pain. If she's in pain, so be it. I mean, those were the type of things they wrote in the medical records. Oh, yeah, they report. wrote that to me. And they, yep, they wrote that even on my I'm face, like, hey, don't you talk? Uh, yeah, yeah, and you don't know that until you get the yeah. medical oh, records. Oh, yeah, they were. They, they wish I was going to die in severe pain. I know, and it's not yeah. that. That's what you're saying. It's important no. to get the medical records while your loved one is still alive so you can see, because they're not going to just tell you what drugs they're giving mm-hmm. them. No, and you know, so when I, know I tried got... to get my dad's medical records, when I tried to get his medical records, you know, um, be- this is when he was going to the psych unit, and, I mean, they kept telling me, oh, we haven't had time to make copies yet, we're behind, we're this. I waited two weeks, and finally I showed up, and I was his legal guardian. So I showed right up, and I said, where are my copies of my medical records? Because I also had another doctor that wanted to review it with me. And um, she says, well, we haven't had a chance. And I said, okay, I'm sitting here and waiting, and I'll sit here all day if I have to. <laughs> I got the records. There was 175 pages worth. Yeah, my Xerox. Yep, I did. (coughs) Yep, yep, I sat there and I got them all. I still have them. I still have them. I have a whole box. And they can't, you know, you've got power of attorney, you know, over your loved one. They can't deny you Mm -hmm. your record. And in our group, group, Murdered by Hospice, um, in the top tab under Files, we have that listed, how to get the medical records from hospice. Right, And right. that is well, from, uh, 
Hospice Patient Alliance, Ron Panzer wrote that. Yep. Right, right. I remember reading that, that, Yeah, and I, you know, and I want to put a plug in for him. He's not doing that anymore. But you know, Debbie and I and Vicky Travis um, were board members on Hospice Patient Alliance, and that was—I mean, I was very sorry, you know, when he shut it down. But I understood why. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it too. will completely mm-hmm. take over your life. I mean, phone calls—you mm-hmm. oh, uh, know—all the time. You, you know, you can't—you'll be sitting down for dinner and you get a call from somebody that's just devastated because mm-hmm. they've already lost somebody or the person is in the hospice facility and they're being murdered and they mm-hmm. don't understand what's going on. So, oh, and that one goes he, even faster. I had a. Uh, yeah, so he had yeah, some really, facility. really good information, and a lot of that, um, those back files, have been downloaded to halovoice.org. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if like there's I anybody say, on here that. If there's anybody in your group or anybody that wants to contact me, they can contact me now through your your um, your, your website and stuff. Because I'm on there now. The Facebook and group. And if they even... Murdered by hospice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah, and if they want to message me or something like that, they can they can do that too. And I will definitely answer. I'll call them back, whatever they need. Because, it, you know, it, it's just good to know that you can get a second opinion and at least talk to somebody about it. Well, and someone who has a medical background. I, I mm-hmm. don't have a right, medical right. Bra- background. I just repeat, I do a lot of research, and I talk to a lot Mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I build the data that I have and repeat it, and, you know, I try to vet, you know, everything that I'm I'm telling people. And, you know, my entire goal is to save somebody from dying like my mom and so many others Mm -hmm. were murdered. And if Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't know what you don't know, and people... Mm -mm need to understand you can't trust hospice. And there are some good ones no. out there, but, you know, we but can't you make a list of them. No, and you can't try them all out. I mean, once you judge, you judge. Yeah. No, no. Even when I went to the Christian one, um, she's the one that wanted to give mom more medicine when the, when the priest was there. So I'm like, that was supposed to be the Christian one, the Christian hospice. And, and, you know, and I hate to say this, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but I hate to say this, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make any difference if it is a religious, and whatever religion, it doesn't matter, it, Mm -hmm. you know, that does not mean that they are going to protect your loved one. They are manipulated. but you kind of wish that they would because you would think they're pro-life. You would think that, you know, they believe in, in natural law. You know, you would just think that, but not, I know that's not always the case. They're, they're taught. They're taught mm-hmm. how to talk to people and what to tell you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, do they believe what they're saying? I don't know. I, you know, I mean, I kind of think if you've got a brain cell that you can figure out if somebody's sitting there and talking one day and within hours of getting morphine and Ativan and they're, mm-hmm. you know, in a coma, that something's wrong. They weren't like that before. And, you know, you've yeah, got to think yeah. it's, you know, but but they can convince you it's a dying process. Well, it is because they're killing them. 
See, that's what yeah. I don't understand. I can't, well, I mean, I do understand, but I'm going to say I don't, is I don't understand how, you know, and I'm Christian too, but, you know, the churches get up there and they're all pro-life and pro-everything pro, pro for the baby, but you don't hear them getting up talking anything about the elderly being, being put to death by hospice. So, I mean, like I said, my dad didn't commit a crime. Dementia is not a crime, yet they wanted to put him to death because he had dementia. Exactly. It makes no sense. Well, they don't even put prisoners to, to death you. like that. He has, no, he has no value of life. Mm-hmm. Who are mm-hmm. you to say that to someone? I mean, mm-hmm. what a horrible mm-hmm. thing to say. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, heart. It really did. Yeah. I mean, like I say, my dad, you know, towards the end didn't know who he was, who I was, where he was. I mean, he was very confused. Mm-hmm. But I loved him, and he had Right, and value. it's not a crime. It's not a crime. No. It's not a crime. And morphine doesn't help that. Giving somebody morphine no, no. because Make they have dementia is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. definitely. I mean, it Taking them off their meds for the work. Right. And yeah, if and you, you can, I did you a Haldo, program with Haldo, Yeah, Haldo won't make them any I did better a, either. I did a program with Kathy Varner. So if you Google mm-hmm. Marsha Joyner, Kathy Varner, um, I mm-hmm. talked a lot about the drugs, the specific drugs, and what mm-hmm. the reactions are from them and what hospice does when they give it to you, how frequently they give it to you. It's mm-hmm. a, a strong, healthy, young man with absolutely no disease. If you gave him the same mm-hmm. drugs that you give to our loved ones, he would die. Mm-hmm. So how is that not murder? Yep. He would die. So well, that's what we, I asked we're the doctor. Down. That's what I asked that doctor. Yeah. So we're down to um, one minute. Um, Debbie, thank you so much for coming on, and we made it through the entire oh, program. Marcia, thanks for having me. I know, I know. I knew you wanted me to do it a few years ago, but I just so. wasn't there yet. Well, you were dealing, yeah, you were dealing with your mama at that time. And right, um, right. towards the end of the month, Dr. Mara um, is talking to me. Um, is going to be on the program on the 28th of February. That's who Irma was talking about earlier. Okay, and so uh, Dr. Yeah. Mara Capel is going to be on the program, and she does have her own podcast, and she's coming on. And later on in good, March, good. I will be on her program. So um, oh, good, good night, good. everybody. Yeah, I'll keep track of your website. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Um, good night, everybody, and thank you so much okay. for tuning in and yep, sticking with us through the entire program. Okay. Okay. All, All right. right. We'll night. be back in a couple of weeks. All right. Okay. Good night, John. Boy. <laughs> Good night, Mary Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs>Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.